Heavenly Father, in a world that often feels hopeless, in a world of instantaneous gratification, we pray that you would change us to be people who are good at waiting, who let the hope of the new creation shape how we live now. Help us to be these who plod and persevere and keep going day by day by day because we trust that one day Jesus will come back as he promised he would. And be with us now, please, as we open up this passage together. We don't simply want to get a better understanding of it, but we want to hear your voice to us. And so would you speak, we pray. Speak to us as individuals, but to us as a church, that we might more faithfully live for you. In Jesus' name, Amen. Um, One recent tweet uh, that I read on the internet said this, in fact, it looked like this. It says, if you don't like diversity, you're going to hate heaven. And in one sense, he's, he's right, isn't he? For the new creation will be a place of ultimate, beautiful, glorious diversity. When Jesus returns, as he promised he would, as he gathers in his people from down the ages, from around the world, the kingdom he gathers will be a diverse people. And to be honest with you, Christians can argue and disagree to some extent about how diverse local churches ought to be, that is, is it legitimate to have a number of different churches in the same kind of locality which all look alike but not like each other, so you might have black churches or white churches or whatever it might be, in the same locality but not sort of intermingling, each filled with the same kind of person. But then people don't argue with the fact that the new heavens and the new earth will be a diverse place. It will be broad and it will be brilliant. To put it bluntly, as Martin Luther King famously said, is it okay for Sunday morning to be the most segregated hour of the week, but then for the new heavens and the new earth to be thoroughly diverse? When we worship him face to face, there will be no segregation. And this passage, as we'll see, in many ways, has been a destination for much of the Bible story. Um, Here is something of the culmination, here is something of the climax, a number of themes and melodies and ideas finally find their fulfilment here. They've been weaving their way through the Bible narrative. Um, And here you get something of a conclusion, or maybe the, the start of a conclusion. Again, lots of them picked up right at the end, chapters 21 and 22 of Revelation. Um, Three threads that we are going to just zoom in on um, this morning. Um, One is this idea of diversity, and as again, it finds something of the beginning of a finale here. This is largely why we're here for this morning. Have a look down at verse 9. We've already sung it. Here is the fruit of the gospel to the nations being seen in beautiful shorthand, every language, every tribe, clearly represented and noted. 
everyone, not one missed. So there's a sort of theme of diversity. There's a theme, I think, in a conclusion of, again, at least perhaps the start of the conclusion of closing. If you've been around church for a while, you may not be surprised by these white robes that everybody is wearing. But actually we'll see there's a long way that comes behind them, a history where they find their culmination in white robes. And then the third theme that we'll pick up is this idea of intimacy with God. It's striking that in Revelation was probably written to, to Christians who were suffering, looking down the barrel of Rome, facing persecution, facing pain, facing hardships, uncertainty. And so again and again and again, God will give them comfort. And he will say, it's okay, I win. It's okay, I will comfort you and look after you. I might not save you from death, but I will save you through death, he says. Putting a broken world back together again. Wiping tears from eyes. There's an intimacy, a kindness, a gentleness from the Lord. He will make it right again. The time that we long for will come. And so we're going to dig back into each of those um, three themes, seeing where they've come from, at least something of where they've come from. And so outline why passages like this are such good news for people like us. Why our world is crying out for and longing for verses like this. So the first thing to say slightly tongue-in-cheek, is it's a, um, a place with a broad guest list. Do you see that? A broad guest list. Up, verse 9, after this I looked and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation and tribe and people and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. Then in verse 9. There. Now, if over the next 30 minutes or so, um, it won't be much longer than that, 30 minutes or so, if your, if your eyes glance back to the passage beforehand and you start to think about those numbers there and you get a, think, wow, 144,000 people in total. And then in verse 9 you get a great multitude that no one could count and you're scratching your head and thinking, how do these two add up? What's going on there? Is, is John, does he have some amnesia? Has he forgotten what he's just written? How does this work? You need to know that in apocalyptic language, 12 means the kind of complete people of God. All the 12 tribes of Israel are there, and a thousand means loads. So you've got loads and complete put together. 144,000. Everyone who is meant to be there is there, it seems to me. And if we take the number as literal, we get ourselves tied up in all kinds of knots, as some groups have when suddenly you start counting and realise there have been more than 144,000. It gets a bit awkward. It seems to me we're missing how to read Revelation. We're missing the point being made, why it's 12,000. And so know that the multitude that no one can count is comprised of all who ought to be there. Loads of them, they've come from everywhere. Why? Because God's vision for his creation, his plan for his kingdom has always been that all would be represented in worshipping him. 
He chose a, a people, a nation for himself, and from them would the message of Jesus eventually ring to the ends of the earth. Everyone in all their breadth is gathered in. He's glorified. His power and beauty and grace and sufficiency might be seen by the breadth of people there. His blood is sufficient. Not just for people like us in a place like this, people whom I like, people like me even, but look how wide his kingdom is. And actually, if you're observant, it's a subset, isn't it, of the people of God. This is not everyone, because these are people who have been martyred, we'll see in verse 14. But the point is, is a truly international family. God's plans and purposes for the gospel have come to pass. His blood is powerful enough to unite even the breadth of humanity. Where there is war and division, he brings peace and unity. He's worthy enough to be, to be worshipped by all. Now this series, um, start of January through to now, has been primarily an opportunity for us to think a bit about how we can better love our neighbourhoods. How we can better love Oxford in a world where there's a culture of division and we don't cope well with people who are not like us, who don't believe the same kind of things of us, we sort of blank them, we mute them on Facebook, we don't follow them anymore because we can't cope with what they say. In a world where there's so much movement of people and people groups, when there are nations are changing um, on our doorstep because people are moving in, people are moving out, you read a section like verse 9, And you think it sounds like the Cowley Road. But not an eclectic, vibrant gathering of people in a variety of restaurants from all over the world, but rather an eclectic, vibrant gathering of Jesus worshippers around the throne of God from all over the world. And so we've done this because we want to be better friends. We want to be friends of those people whom the Lord is bringing into our midst, whether on our street or workplace or social life or school or whatever it might be. But having said all that, it would be remiss of me to say, maybe this passage is for you because he wants you to get out of Oxford. He's brought the nations to us. But maybe you feel that tug overseas. That tug away from here, away from comfort, away from what you know. And maybe you are thinking, praying, considering, feeling convicted of the need to head away. I'm just aware that where you get these pictures of diversity, for some of us that may be a voice speaking to us. Two things to say. One is that is you come and chat to me afterwards, or someone who knows you well, or your home group, or something like that. Um, Let's begin that conversation and pray and work with you. Um, The second thing to say is make the most of the opportunities that you have now. That is, if the Lord has sent the nations to Oxford, then reach out to the nations while you're here. Sometimes we think it's a bit more glamorous or exciting or easier if we go across seas. Actually, let's see faithfulness now where the Lord has sent us. And so verse 9 then after this I looked and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people and language standing before the throne and before the Lamb. It's a place with a broad guest list. 
this week um, in preparing for this, I, I've had a song going round and round in my head, and it will age me, um, but I thought I would share it with you, and you can come and chat to me afterwards over a coffee as to whether you think I'm onto something or not. Um, it's a song by a group called U2, and the line goes like this, I believe in the kingdom come when... Anybody? I still haven't found what I'm looking for. I believe in the kingdom come when... No. It's just me, isn't it? All the colours will bleed into one, they sing. And I've always thought that's completely wrong because of verses like this. That is, there is differentiation. You see all the colours, if you like, represented. So if you're talking about bleeding into one, into sort of like what happens with plasticine, it all just becomes the same, then I think we'd have to disagree with Bono et al. But I don't know if I'm being over generous. It strikes me that he doesn't say all the colours are rolled into one. The fact that it's bleed into one I wonder if it's slightly deeper. Again, come and chat to me afterwards. Is it due to Christ bleeding that we are indeed one? I've never thought about that before until this last week. Because it's not just the broad guest list, but there is the same dress code. You see that? Everybody is wearing white robes. Is it because of Christ's blood that we are all one? I'm told this is a thing. You turn up to an event or a party and somebody is wearing the same thing as you and apparently that's a bad thing. Am I right? But the point is here, everybody is wearing the same thing. And they have to be. Before we get there, notice with me where the people of God are. Here is the drumbeat that goes through this chapter again and again and again. The people are before a throne, verse 9. They are standing before the throne and before the Lamb, verse 10. Everyone cries out in a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, verse 11. All the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. They fell on their faces before the throne, verse 15. They are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in the temple. And he who sits on the throne will shout to them in his presence. Verse 17, for the lamb at the centre of the throne will be their shepherd. And the thing we're not meant to miss is at the heart of this, the heart of this picture is a throne. And so around the very outside you've got this glorious multitude of people from everywhere, all languages, crying out in praise to the one at the centre. Inside them it seems you have angels and then elders and four living creatures within them. But they are not the focus. The focus is the call. The focus is the throne. The heart of the scene, all attention is in on the one who is worthy of praise. The God upon the throne. And indeed the centrepiece of this throne, verse 17, is a lamb. Is Jesus. Whom we'll see in a bit becomes a shepherd. The only one worthy of true praise is the recipient of rightful praise. 
as in verse 11, Amen. Praise and glory and wisdom and thanks and honour and power and strength be to our God forever and ever, as we've sung. And the fact that they are wearing these white robes is a question that John will be asked by one of the elders as well. He knows the answer to this question. It's there in verse 13 and 14. Do you see then, one of the elders asked me, these in white robes, who are they and where do they come from? Verse 14, I said, say, you know. And he said, these are they who have come out of the great tribulation. They've washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. The question from the elder is, is not for the sake of the elder. It's for John and for us a clarity of who these people are. That we might know who they are. And so the question is, what do you wear? What do you wear before a perfect and pure God? In one sense, the story of the Bible is a story of clothing and covering. It's a story of dealing with shame and exposure. Do you remember Adam and Eve when they first walk out on God? the very beginning, they, they doubt his word, they deny his authority, they reject his goodness. And immediately they hide because they are ashamed. Shame is a very powerful, very common emotion. It can profoundly shape people's lives. You know that. From the toddler who hides behind the sofa because they know they've done wrong. To the, to the adult who wishes the ground would swallow them up when they're found out. Or, or the victim who will distance themselves and cut themselves off from people forever because of past experiences that have shaped them, brought them shame. Each of us will know something of that. Something of the power of shame. A variety of reasons, a variety of coping mechanisms that we have. But a world of shame is not how it was meant to be. Do you remember how it, how, how it finished? The pattern of perfect creation. 2 verse 25, the final verse, the, the last glimpse, the crowning glory of that pattern... Genesis 2 verse 25, Adam and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. Picture that, no shame, perfect relationships with the Lord, with one another. Which says to us, in one sense, and the Bible is a book about dealing with shame. Undoing shame, or else why is that verse there? Why else is Genesis 2.25 the way that it finishes? And so they feel shame. And they hide. There's something about rebelling and sinning and fighting against God which means that we do that. We we feel exposed and vulnerable and ashamed and we'd rather be anywhere else than there. Because people know. And so they hide. It's this ghastly cosmic game of hide and seek. They hide from each other making clothes for themselves, from fig trees covering themselves. They hide from God as they foolishly shake in the the bushes as he walks in the garden. And they hide from themselves as well. Foolishly pointing fingers of blame at somebody else. This wasn't me, Lord. This woman you put here with me, this snake made me do it. It's your fault, God. 
And we've been seeking to cover our vulnerability and our shame and our blame ever since. And in the garden God shows them grace because there they are in their fig leaf outfits. And he covers them with skin, animal skins. That's striking, isn't it? How do you deal with sin and shame? You... There must be a sacrifice. There must be something that dies. The blood in the place of another. And in our world where what we wear says an awful lot about us, how we want to be perceived by other people, it's a style that reflects our personality. It's brands that say something about us. It's, it's a way of us communicating with those around us. Here's how I want you to perceive me. What do you wear before the throne of God forever? Robes washed white by the blood of the Lamb. To to stand before this place of perfection, we need clothes from him. Clothes to cover our guilt and our shame. White in Revelation means victory, but it also means purity. Cleanliness, righteousness, justice, holiness. White, because of the blood of the Lamb, means we trust Christ. How is your guilt and your shame before God dealt with forever? Finally, it is by Christ. We're made holy by Him. White robes communicate something of the fundamental reality of who we are now. He has taken our shame and he's made us clean. It's worth just saying on my travels that sometimes people get this very wrong. If I can sort of stretch this metaphor slightly, lots of people think their robes are white because they've washed them themselves by good behaviour of some sort. But that's not right. They are white because they've been washed in the blood of the Lamb. That's the only place where shame and guilt can be dealt with. And some would say, well, it's, you know, it's through enough of what we do. It is enough selflessness. It is enough self-denial. It's enough days of good behaviour. It's enough trips to church, enough commitment to home group, enough rotors that I'm signed up for, enough praying for others. God will have to give me a white robe because look at all the stuff I've done. Pretty impressive. The other thing that we can get wrong is sometimes folk who would even call themselves believers and it's the way that our hearts drift. It's a, I need to supplement this cleansing in some sense. Jesus and his blood, it's made a pretty good start. You know, it's a white robe, but not that white. So I'm going to see if I can scrub it a bit cleaner by what I do. You know, he's he's done the the hard work. He's done the 70%. Now let's see if I can add it on a bit to make it 100. So we can pretend we're better than we are before him and before others. We can pretend that we don't need the robes so much as if we are hiding from him in the garden. We can 
pretend and look the part within a place like this. I kind of need rope, but not that much, because I'm not that bad, actually. But we're caked in dirt. And yet, because of his kindness and because he loves us, so he gives us white robes. Guest list, dress code. And then we have the same future promises. Verse 15, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. Never again will they hunger, never again will they thirst. The sun will not beat down on them, nor any scorching heat, for the Lamb at the centre of the throne will be their shepherd. He will lead them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And John's quoting from the book of Isaiah. You can see the little footnotes there. But what the, the message we are left with is this promise of intimacy. This promise of intimacy with the God who made us in a place of peace. There we shall have found what we are looking for. A future without suffering. And do you see that? He, he will shelter us, verse 15, with his presence. Isn't that lovely? And the lamb will become the shepherd. And the shepherd will lead us to living water. Lead us to the water of life forever. And the God who made us will wipe away every tear from every eye, from every one of his. And I know this is a live thing for people who are here today. I know in this room there will be all kinds of suffering people are going through. I know this kind of hope matters. Many of us will know that um, Sarah Phillips' dad has been very poorly. And many of us will know that sadly he died on Friday morning. And I'm saying this because I've been told I can. But these kind of hopes that we have are not just theoretical They're not just ideas. They're not just doctrinal tick boxes. But they are true and they are real. And they are good. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. And where we, or brothers and sisters around the world, are tired with this world... And where we long for something more, and where maybe it's physical suffering, maybe it feels overwhelming at times, maybe we feel a distance from God, maybe there is persecution, hardship, pain. For brothers and sisters around the world, that will be the daily reality, as they meet this morning even. The fear of their lives. And where Christians ask, is it worth it? Can I keep going? So John says to us here, it is worth it. Because look at the hope we have. Look at all that we have to come. This world is not all there is. 
and it tells us it is. But John sees different. Christian, we have a hope. But let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you that this is not it. We thank you that there is so much more to come. We thank you for the Lord Jesus who died and was raised again and secured for us a future with you. Thank you for the Lamb who becomes the shepherd who leads his people to living water forever. We thank you for this snapshot this morning. Thank you for the broad guest list of people from all over the world. We pray that we might be a people who take that message of grace to the nations, whether people who live next door to us or people in far-flung lands. We pray that we might know the reality of the dress code, the white robes that you have given us to wear. We thank you that because of the death and resurrection of Jesus, sin and shame have been dealt with forever and we can come before you and praise you. And we thank you too for the reality of the hope to come. The promises of intimacy with you. The promise of a creation put right again. A place where there is no more suffering. A place where you are at the centre. A place where you will wipe away every tear from the eyes of your people. And we pray these things in your precious name, Lord Jesus. Amen.